everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. Today we will be discussing the life and legacy of Isabeau of Bavaria, Queen of France. Joining me today will be Dr. Tracy Adams, a medieval historian who focuses on French and English literature alongside feminist theory. She is the author of numerous books, most importantly for this podcast, her seminal work, The Life and Afterlife of Isabeau of Bavaria. Keep listening to learn more. Treacherous, wanton, frivolous, obese, foreign, deceitful. These are all terms used to describe Isabeau of Bavaria, a woman at the center of one of the most turbulent eras in French history. She shared the world stage with names like Joan of Arc, Henry V, and Charles VII, but her name would not be revered and lionized by later generations. Instead, she would be cast as the ultimate villain in the tale of the struggle for France. She would be blamed for inflaming animosity and divisions within the French court and driving her husband, King Charles VI, to madness. The information we have about Isabeau is often from years after her own lifetime, and none cite contemporary sources, leading us to question the validity of her legacy within the popular imagination. In the end, Isabeau's life provides an opportunity for a much more nuanced legacy. The date of Isabeau's birth is highly debated. When she was offered in marriage to King Charles VI of France, her uncle, Duke Frederick of Bavaria Lanschut, described her as around 13 or 14 years old, but there is no record of her birth. What is known is that her parents were Duke Stephen III of Bavaria Ingolstadt and Tadia Visconti. On July 13, 1385, Isabeau, who is recorded as being 16, traveled to Amiens, France, to be presented to Charles VI. He inspected her outward appearance, and once he approved of Isabeau, the wedding date was set for July 17th. After the marriage, Isabeau and Charles seemed to develop a close bond. Charles showered gifts on his young bride, which culminated in a lavish coronation ceremony on August 23, 1389. is recorded as holding her own during the ceremony at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. While this should have been a moment of triumph for Isabeau, it actually is where one of the most persistent misconceptions about her come from. Here's Dr. Tracy Adams. This 
ideas still floating around that she couldn't speak French very well. Um, and that comes from a very particular place from the chronicler Jean Foissart. And it comes from an early interpretation of Foissart who was at her coronation. And he, as, as Foissart himself says, I'm only going to tell you what I actually see myself or what I hear from an eyewitness. So some of the things he describes are described in great detail and other things are very sparsely um, described presumably because he hears them from a witness as opposed to having seen them himself and being able to, to wax on about them. And so one of the things he says is that, that when, when um, Isabel got her gifts, she just, just thanked the people who gave them to her. And then he says, Valentina Visconti, who was the, the sister-in-law married to the king's brother, who was um, going through the same procession because she recently arrived in France. He describes in some detail how Valentina eloquently thanked the people who had given her her gifts. And so, so the comparison, a very sparse description of Isabeau thanking her, her um, thanking the people for the gifts. And then Valentina, on the other hand, very eloquently with a lot of detail, led to the interpretation that Isabeau couldn't speak French very well. And it really does come down to this one description but you look at it and you go, well, it's very clear he was still looking at the king. He was in the king's room while the king was thanking his Parisian citizens for his gifts. He obviously didn't make it to Isabeau, um, but then he did get to Valentina. And based on that, we have this myth that Isabeau couldn't speak French very well. And in fact, we have all kinds of records of her mediating. You don't, you don't mediate between French speakers if you can't speak French yourself. Um, and then also Foissart himself ends the day by saying the king and the queen stood up and spoke eloquently to the Parisians, thanked them for the coronation and, and thanked them for the, 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 all of the festivities. And well, there she was speaking eloquently. So, so it's just this kind of focalization on one tiny bit that um, you could sort of pick your little detail and, and create any story you want. And that story is still kind of floating around. So she's not very bright. That's the idea. That one continues to circulate a bit. In 1392, now a mother of three living children, Isabeau's position at court shifted dramatically when her husband suffered the first of many bouts with mental insanity. Historians now speculate that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Charles would have violent outbursts that were then followed by a catatonic state, which could last for months. As the years went by, the attacks became more prolonged and the periods of sanity shorter. After Charles recovered from his first attack, he ensured that Isabeau would have a powerful position at court if he were to die or become permanently ill before their son came of age. Charles named Isabeau regent in his absence, giving her full control over the Dauphin and the treasury. This was a political move never before seen in France, where typically an older male relative took on the role of regent. Dr. Tracy Adams argues this is an often overlooked but exceedingly important legacy for Isabeau and French royal history. Tracy states, As far as I'm concerned, she's the first female regent in the sense that Charles VI wrote a, an, ordinance, an ordinance that said, if I die leaving a minor son, then um, the son will inherit the throne immediately. You know, if he's six or 10, whatever, he doesn't have to be an adult. He will immediately um, inherit the throne. And 
this made the mother very important because if you don't have an, a regent, say another man ruling, then the mother is going to be the central figure. And so people debate over what that means that Charles decided to not appoint a regent, deliberately not appoint a regent, because he had earlier in 1393, he'd made his brother the regent in the case of his death. And I should also say that the ordinances are always just about Charles, Charles and his death but everyone understood them to mean when he is mad, when he's insane and can't rule. So people then sort of applied those same same structures um, when, when he was out of commission, which was quite a lot of the time. And you also have to imagine that when he when he came back to his senses, that he wasn't really working very well. I mean, they can't be insane for long periods of time and then suddenly wake up and, and be you know, completely yourself. Yeah, so, so he was not not fine for most of his reign. Isabeau, I think, then is so important because she's the first, um, the first queen regent who actually rules through her son or on behalf of her son, that kind of fiction of the minor king ruling, and she's kind of behind the scenes. And then that is the pattern that gets passed down. So you see that with, with, um, with Anne of France, who um, is a sort of governess, but actually a ruler of France for her brother, Charles VIII. And then you see it with Catherine de Medicis, and you see it with Anne of Austria. So it becomes the pattern for, for Regency. It starts with, with Isabeau. King Charles VI's illness could not have come at a more turbulent time. France was locked in a bitter struggle with England's King Henry IV, and then his successor, King Henry V, each vying for control of the French throne. With the French king seemingly incapacitated by a mysterious illness, the English became bolder in their attempt to control France. With attacks from without, there was also political strife within France. Isabeau, highly trusted by her husband, often took on an active role in maintaining control within the country. One of Isabeau's more permanent acts as regent was attempting to broker peace between the king's brother, Louis, Duc d'Orléans, and John the Fearless, Duc de Bourgogne, each of whom was vying for control of the king and of France. Her attempts would be thwarted when in 1407, Louis was assassinated by the Burgundian faction, plunging the country into a civil war that would last until 1435. Mixed in with the power struggle at court and her husband's bouts with mental illness is one of the more depraved rumors about Isabeau's life. The story goes that while her husband was suffering from insanity, Isabeau began an affair with her brother-in-law, Louis. In a similar fashion to many of the women featured on this podcast, the rumor of infidelity and or incest has clung to Isabeau through the centuries. However, Tracy argues that these rumors did not begin until after her death and provide questionable facts when looked at in more detail. There's nothing from her lifetime that indicates that there were rumors. And we can date the first trace of a rumor to a period just after her death when the English were occupying France. And at that point, you get a couple of sources saying that the English king, although the king wasn't old enough really to be speaking, but, but they, they always blame um, the rumor on the English king. So the English came and said about Isabeau that her son, Charles VII, was illegitimate. And then that got turned into the rumor of the affair with Louis of Orléans. It comes primarily from 19th century historians um, 
the, the professionalization of history as a discipline took place throughout the 19th century. And so historians became very interested in course and reading primary sources. So we owe so much to these historians because they, they dug out the primary sources and they, they edited so many of them, but they read them from a very different perspective from the one that you would choose today. So, so they read these sources from 19th century male perspectives. And so you can imagine the way things get interpreted. They come into the 20th, 21st century, and we still read them because they're sort of seminal works, these, these large, um, these, these weighty histories filled with, with, um, with edited primary sources. But you've got to be careful because once again, if you don't go chasing down your own primary sources, you believe what you're told and run into these, these problems. And so that's really where it comes from. So I, I don't want to complain about them because they're working um, as, as people did in their day. I mean, they're, they're, they're people who come out of a particular culture um, and we owe so much to them for having found the sources, but uh, they read them from a very particular perspective. And in Isabeau's case, it's not only this sort of misogynistic idea of women as, as flighty and incapable of, of, of rule. It's also that she was German. And so you can imagine that, that especially after 1870, the, the, the French did not have a lot of nice things to say about Germans. Um, they, they never did, in fact. I mean, because with Isabeau, you can actually go back to um, the, the, the first really vicious discussion of her as a German woman comes from Louise de Caraglio, uh, so late 18th century, historian writing um, during the, the time of the French Revolution. And so you can imagine that, that revolutionaries would not think very highly, first of all, of the royalty, but then as a German person, she compares her to Marie Antoinette and um, has nothing good to say. And so that all comes into the 19th century, then that goes into the 20th century and into the 21st century. And you still have people reading this stuff from the 19th century and citing them as sources which in many cases is fine, but you've really got to be careful with what you've got there. During most of the civil unrest, Charles VI remained incoherent, leaving Isabeau in charge of the government's response. She raised troops, brokered alliances, and watched in horror as King Henry V of England took advantage of the deteriorating state of France and crushed the French forces at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. Isabeau has often been blamed for the dissolution of peace and autonomous control within France. 16th century historian Duelline stated, The fantasies, passions, and feminine humors governing thus in the realm, she brought it to the brink of ruin. While 20th century historian André Poulet argued that, According to the drift of the moment, she allied herself with whomever seemed likely to triumph. But as Tracy points out, it's hard to work within a feud, right? It's not that easy. As, as we kind of know, right, whatever your political leaning in the U.S. today is, I think we all appreciate how impossible it is to get people to work together if they're on opposite sides. So she's in that situation. The only difference is that that her parties are armed. I mean, so they're, they're, these are armies that are... So I would say that that's a myth still persists that she wasn't a very effective governor without taking into account what it means to be stuck in the middle of a feud. In a cruel twist of fate, a couple months after the disastrous defeat at the Battle of Agincourt, Isabeau's son and the French heir, Dauphin Louis, died suddenly after a short illness. Isabeau's fourth son, John of Touraine, became heir, but he would die two years later in 1417. 
leaving Isabeau's last son, Charles, as heir. In the initial years following the Dauphin Charles being named heir, the strife within France intensified. The Dauphin Charles, during an altercation, murdered the leader of the Burgundian faction at court, John the Fearless. In a moment of lucidity, King Charles VI disinherited his only remaining son as his heir. Following his son's disinheritance in 1419, King Charles VI signed the Treaty of Troyes, acknowledging King Henry V of England as his heir. In addition, he arranged a marriage between Henry V and his daughter, Catherine of Valois, the ancestor of another wicked woman featured on this podcast, Mary I. The disinheritance of Isabeau and Charles' son was seen as a humiliating defeat by the French people. Charles VI was unable to attend the signing of the treaty himself, so Isabeau took his place at the proceeding. This allowed her to become the physical symbol of defeat, and the blame for the Treaty of Troy was laid firmly at her feet. In particular, her German ancestry was provided as proof of divided loyalties, and her treacherous betrayal of France by her contemporaries and later historians. Charles VI died in 1422, followed shortly thereafter by his designated heir, Henry V. Isabeau's daughter was now in a powerful position as the mother to the new King of England and France, Henry VI, husband of another woman on this podcast, Margaret of Anjou. It is during this period that many of the negative rumors about Isabeau began, especially in regards to her son's legitimacy. In an attempt to claim what he viewed as his rightful inheritance, Isabeau's son Charles launched an assault on English forces, which would last until his ultimate crowning in 1429 at Rheim Cathedral. This battle for the French crown introduced another formidable woman in history, but one whose legacy is completely opposite from Isabeau's, Joan of Arc. After her son's coronation as King Charles VII of France, Isabeau retired from court life, and she died in Paris on September 24, 1435. Isabeau would not fade into obscurity after her death, and as Tracy writes in her book, The Life and Afterlife of Isabeau of Bavaria, unlucky in life, she was even unluckier in death, victim of a concatenation of misunderstandings that over time crystallized into a dark mythology. Much of the writing on Isabeau's life that we have today were published years after her death. In addition, Tracy argues that many of the primary sources later historians cite do not exist or have been misinterpreted through the centuries. One of these primary sources comes from another iconic contemporary of Isabeau, Christine de Pizan. In many scholarly interpretations of Christine's work, it is argued that Christine disapproved of Isabeau and her lifestyle. Tracy, meanwhile, sees less of that at play, and in most cases sees a need to compare and contrast two women from the same era. I think it has to do with the sort of psychological tendency to like to see women in pairs. So we have Christine, the, the, the moralizing feminist um, who, who looks at this sort of frivolous woman who according to the old legend was having an affair with the king's brother and that that division kind of got woven into stories of christine de pizan and i came along and saw that and and 
when you read this stuff, you just, you don't really think too critically about it if that's not your focus. So I was focused on Christine's work and I kind of just accepted that without looking any further because you honestly just don't have time to hunt down every rumor that you come across when you're, when you're researching one character. And after a while I started thinking, but, but you know, all of the, 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 the criticisms that you see in the scholarship about Isabel Bavaria are these, these classic things that you say about women that, 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 that uh, you see, find in misogynist literature. She's having an affair with the king's brother. She's obese. She's frivolous. She spends all the king's money on jewels and doesn't pay attention to her own children. So it's like one thing after another that sounds just like traditional misogynistic cant. And so I just was curious about that and started looking at it for a conference. And so I started actually looking at the primary sources and you go, but there is nothing in the primary sources about an affair with Louis of Orléans. There isn't even anything about a rumor of an affair with Louis of Orléans because you'd expect at least to find that. You'd think in the Chronicles, you're gonna find the Chronicles going, oh, she was a, a terrible woman, flighty and, and, and having an affair and that kind of thing, but you don't even find that. And so, you started looking at a little further afield and realized that that there were a couple of German scholars who years ago, back like 1960s and even further back than that, who had read all of the French stuff and gone, this stuff isn't true and exonerated her. But French scholars don't very often read the German scholarship. The, the reverse is true. The Germans read everything. And so they, the scholars had read all of the French material, but the French scholars will sometimes cite these sources, but they obviously haven't read them because they don't engage with them at all. And that's where I started. So I started doing my own research on Isabeau Bavaria and then very quickly realized it's, it's interesting because she's an interesting character, but also it's fun to look at black legends and try to understand where they come from. And then try to dismantle them and just sort of go back to the primary sources and, and show what they actually say. And so since that, um, I had written a book before Isabel Bavaria, but it was in a, a fairly different area. But since Isabel, what I've been writing about is mostly black legends and where they come from. Ever since that, that point, my primary interest has been to just very carefully look at primary sources and try to understand what they can tell us. But I try to make very clear that I'm not telling people what they should believe. I just want them to see what's out there and then point them in the direction of the sources if they want to go back and check them themselves. So I'll tell them what I think they say, but it's how I read them. They should read them the way they read them. And I just, the thing that I have been most interested in, um, in engaging with are this, the, the secondary sources that don't tell you where they got their information. And so they let you think that they found this stuff in the primary sources when there's nothing about it. And so the, the chronicler that everybody reads, the, the, um, the monk of Saint-Denis, in 1405 was getting his information from the Burgundians. And so in 1405, you've got four criticisms of, criticisms of Isabeau. And everybody focuses on those without looking at the source. I mean, they're coming from her enemy. It's, so if you want to hear something positive about Joe Biden, you're not going to go to Fox News, right? I mean, so see, it really depends on who you, your, who your source is. And it's just for that one year. And yet that has helped reinforce the, the, the myth of her throughout the, throughout the centuries. It also seems to be the case that in the desire to find an antagonist within this history of France, the larger positive aspects of Isabeau's life and queenship have been forgotten. 
Here's Tracy. Isabeau is just frivolous. I mean, spending the money of France and just uh, doing all of this for her own pleasure, which is clearly not the case. And that's actually an area that has not been addressed and should, because other queens have um, have been recognized as patrons. And so people have done quite, especially art historians, have done a lot of, of research on queens and gift giving and just being patrons of the arts. Isabeau has no such study devoted to her. So I think that that's another area that, that could be explored. She wanted to exercise the vengeance that had brewed so long in her malicious head, a custom particular to women who wait for the time and occasion to avenge themselves of a long dissimulated injury. This quote by historian Duelaine may have given you pause or made you even draw back in horror, but for so much of our history, the stories we know about the quote-unquote wicked women in history often use the words and descriptions such as these. Words like obese, frivolous, ugly, a witch, a whore. Words that are hard to find in the historical texts about men. For Isabeau, she is just one of thousands of women who have come down to us in the present as women deserving of anything but our sympathy. However, Tracy argues that that is not the end of the story, but we should continue to search for the real narrative of these women's lives and portray them in a more holistic way. I think it's so important to keep teaching these figures in history courses. And I'm saying that because, as you know, um, medieval history is just not a, not a big priority in, in most universities today. But I think that the combination of asking students to look at the sources and think about who they are written by and, and what they mean to do, how different sources perform work for, for different politicians. I think that if we could just spend a lot more time on that, we could make some progress towards teaching people to pay attention to the sources that they're inundated with every day. It's a neutral territory. So you go back to the Middle Ages, you talk about, about propaganda and so on, and you don't have to offend anyone, you know, anyone's political sensibilities today, but you're making that lesson very clear. Um, uh, the, the, the misogyny, the, the xenophobia and so on all comes out in these chronicles, which are entertaining to read. So I would just like to make a plug, not exactly a lone voice, I guess all historians are interested in this thing, but I'm not sure if we have a whole lot of influence. But I just think that it's really a shame that that universities have so decentralized the old stuff. I mean, the, the, the stuff from the, the ancient past, from the Middle Ages, from the Renaissance. I mean, it's really not until you get up to World War II, maybe World War I, although less so. It's World War II where history starts for most people. Those are important areas, obviously, but I just think we could do a lot socially if we paid more attention to, to the Middle Ages. 